Well, as Tim just mentioned uh, in his prayer, we are indeed moving into the Psalms for this summer. We have an annual tradition here of uh, stopping whatever book we were in, or if we finished a book, we, for the summer, take some time and look at summer Psalms. And uh, so if you didn't know that and you were wondering why we're not in Daniel, that's why. Uh, We stopped uh, after Daniel chapter 6, and we will pick up again in Daniel chapter 7 in the fall. So the Psalms uh, are a good Good to study uh, every, uh, on, on often, uh, which is why we do it every year. It's also uh, a good book for you to dip into on a regular basis. You probably, if you've been a Christian uh, for a long time, have found that the Psalms have become a sort of companion for you because the Psalms are the, the hymnal of, of Israel and they really express pretty much every emotion that, that we could have as God's people. And and so, uh, so they're, they're a great book to, again, to look at different psalms and, and different emotions. This morning, we are looking at one of David's psalms. He wrote the majority of them, and the psalm we're looking at today is Psalm 14. If you have your Bibles with you, as always, I'd encourage you to open them up and keep them open because we'll be looking at different phrases and words. If you don't have a Bible but would like to use one, you can find the Bible that we use here, our Pew Bible, in the seat in front of you, underneath, and you'll find our psalm on page 453. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous." You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. (coughs) So this psalm doesn't uh, really begin on the cheeriest of notes. Verse 1 begins, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, one of the things that we have to reckon with, if if we're going to properly understand what's being said here, is we're going to have to understand what the Hebrews meant, what these Hebrew words mean, two specifically. The first one I want to look at is the word fool. Fool says, the fool says in his heart. Now, we generally think of a fool, I think um, probably most of us would, when we think of the word fool, we think of like a court jester, someone like that. We think of a fool as maybe someone who simply lacks sense, or a fool might be someone who just acts stupidly, makes foolish decisions. 
However, we have to understand, if we're going to understand this psalm correctly, that that's not what the psalmist means when he uses the word fool. That's not what this Hebrew word means. The Hebrew word translated fool here does not speak primarily to a lack of sense, but rather to a lack of righteousness. I looked it up in various Hebrew lexicons. One says this, the word fool implies a willful moral insolence and disobedience to the law of God. Another Hebrew lexicon says it implies someone who is a rebel and disobedient to the law of God. One Old Testament scholar says this, there are three Hebrew words for fool, and all of them speak of moral orientation rather than intellectual ability. Moral orientation rather than intellectual ability. So when we speak of fool, or when the psalmist speaks of fool, he's not speaking primarily of a mental problem. He's speaking primarily of a moral problem. The second word to understand here, if we're going to understand this correctly, is the word heart. Generally speaking, again, if, if we're thinking of the way we use the word heart, we, well, probably oftentimes just think of it as the internal organ that we have that keeps everything running. But if we use the word heart figuratively, Generally speaking, we speak of heart as the seat of our emotions, the seat of our emotions. We tend to separate our head from our heart. We think with our head, but we feel with our heart. That's kind of the way we use it all the time, but we need to understand, again, if we're going to understand the psalm, that that, that is not how the word is being used here. The Hebrew word here and, and everywhere translated heart, well, sometimes, and context tells you, sometimes it can refer to the organ. Sometimes we, we find that in Scripture. But oftentimes, it is used figuratively. And when it is used that way, it is not simply speaking of the seat of our emotions. To the Hebrew, the heart includes the mind. Again, looking at Hebrew lexicons, the heart means the, the mind, the soul, the spirit, and the self, i.e., the source of life of the inner person in various aspects, including thoughts, volition, and other areas of the, inter, uh, of the inner life. Another lexicon says the heart is the central living, thinking, and feeling essence of a person. So when the Hebrews say heart here, they're not separating head from heart. They're not separating mind from emotions. The heart thinks and wills and feels. So knowing that, we see here this first sentence the, that Scripture here says that a fool says in his heart, there is no God. In other words, the atheist, according to Scripture, is not someone who is sincerely expressing an intellectual opinion solely due to the absence of evidence of God's existence. According to Scripture, an atheist is rather someone who is sincerely expressing a sinful rebellion against an overwhelming abundance 
of evidence of God's existence. It is a moral problem. The statement, there is no God, according to Psalm 14, is the statement of a person who knows there is a God, by definition. Because by definition, a fool is a person who is in willful disobedience to the law of God. God tells us in his word over and over and over again that he has clearly revealed himself in creation. God is invisible. He is a spirit, invisible. But all things that are visible have been created by him, and in those things he has revealed his invisible attributes. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And when I look at you, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, when I look at them, I think, what is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Paul wrote the letter to the Romans and uh, Romans is a, a, a titanic uh, letter. Those of you who have read it know what I'm talking about. It, it's essentially uh, just a, a huge uh, summation of the entirety of salvation. But it's interesting, if you look at Romans chapters 1 through 3, it almost seems like it's a commentary on this psalm, Psalm 14. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the most clear statement of what I just said. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because everyone has done a PhD in uh, geology and astronomy? No. No, it's plain to everyone that God exists. Why? Because God has shown it to them. If God wants to show us something, he can. He's omnipotent. God has shown it to us. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And listen to what Paul says. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The exact same word that is used here in Psalm 14. Scripture says that all of creation screams, God made me. Last summer, uh, I took a three-month sabbatical granted by the church. Thank you again. It was wonderful. 
And we took some time and went to Acadia National Park, and we went to Rocky Mountain National Park, and Yellowstone, and Grand Teton, and, and everywhere you looked, there was God's handiwork on display. But friends, you don't have to go anywhere to know that God exists. You scream, God made me. All you have to do to know that God exists is exist yourself. God has revealed himself in the things that have been made, and that includes you. In fact, you bear the evidence of God's handiwork far better than Yellowstone, because you are the only thing in creation that is actually made in the image of God. No national park can match the grandeur of a human being. Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. You, God, knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Here in Romans 1, we see Paul expressing exactly what is in Psalm 14, which is that the atheist is not making the claim there is no God because he can't see God in creation. He is making the claim because he can clearly see God in creation and is suppressing that evidence in unrighteousness. And thus Paul says they are fools. If you're here this morning, and, and that's what you are saying, if you are, have come here this morning, maybe you're just you know, attending here uh, as, uh, as a friend, and maybe you're here with your dad, it's Father's Day, but you, you really don't hold to any of this, and you're suffering through this right now. Uh, I would just urge you, if, if that is your claim that there is no God, I would urge you to just take this argument to heart today. Really see if... Uh, you truly believe deep down there is no God. I can tell you that uh, the phrase that's often been attributed to atheists by Christians, uh, that an atheist claim is there is no God and I hate him, is something that I've found to be true, generally speaking. When I, when I actually speak to atheists and we uh, talk about God, uh, they don't dismiss God really as a fairy tale. There are plenty of things that, that, you know, I could impress and impose upon somebody that I believe actually exist, like Spider-Man or, you know, unicorns. I could talk to somebody and say, but don't you see Spider-Man actually exists? And they would dismiss me as a fool, as someone to laugh at. But surely they wouldn't get upset. But when I talk to an atheist and claim that God does exist, I think without fail, I've gotten anger back. Just think about that. I've never gone to a funeral and not have people say, he's looking down on us now. He's somewhere better now. I've never had someone walk up and say, he's just rotting in the ground because there is no God. 
Scripture says we know there is a God. Take that to heart. Notice now where this thinking leads. Psalm 14 says they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. In other words, your actions flow out of what you believe. That makes sense. If you say one thing and claim something and then you walk in a certain way, your walk or your actions are going to flow out of your proclamations. The Hebrew word here, abominable, it means detestable or repulsive or vile. Now, why would the denial of God automatically lead to abominable deeds? Because the denial is in the heart. And again, the heart is your central nervous system for the way you act and the way you think and the way you feel, the way you live. Paul says that on the one hand, the Jews have been given God's law in written form on stone tablets called the Ten Commandments. This is in Romans again. But he also says that the Gentiles, we sitting in this room, have been given the law not via stone tablets, but written in our hearts. Paul says this, then the Gentiles, when they do not have the law on stone tablets, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, their conscience bears them witness. Paul says that the Gentiles, prior to the Bible, obviously we have the Ten Commandments now, prior to the Bible, the Gentiles didn't have the Ten Commandments, but nonetheless knew what God's law required. They knew because God had implanted his law in their heart, which means that God has not only implanted his evidence that he exists in creation, but also in his law, written on our consciences. See, it doesn't matter if we have the Ten Commandments in stone or not, because God has written his law on every human heart. So the fool is acting in rebellion to the law that's written on his heart. And this rebellion leads to abominable deeds, which is exactly, again, what Paul says in Romans. Paul begins by talking about the suppression of truth and unrighteousness. And then he goes on, he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor God, honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What David calls abominable, Paul calls dishonorable. Same kind of idea. And it's interesting, given that this is LGBT Pride Month, that the first two abominable deeds that Paul lists are the L and the B in the LGBT, or or I should say the, uh, the L and the G. The two things, two of the things that our society is celebrating this month 
Paul lists as abominable deeds. And David concludes, after he talks about these things, these abominable deeds, he concludes that there are none who does good. With verse 1, David essentially concludes that there are no good fools. Anyone who is intentionally suppressing the truth in unrighteousness inevitably lives a life of rebelliousness against God. That's just going to follow. But notice that David doesn't stop there. Verses 2 through 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, Christian, this may be where this psalm becomes a little uncomfortable for you. Actually, it probably got uncomfortable like five minutes ago. But, um, but, you, but you see, if, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm not an atheist. I believe there's a God. Well, then verses 2 through 3 are for you. Because notice how Psalm 14 expands the category of those who are in rebellion against God. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. See if there are any who seek after God. And what does God find? God finds that they have all turned aside. Together, They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Notice how David begins by condemning the fool and ends by condemning himself. And not surprisingly, Paul does the same thing. Paul begins, yes, by condemning the L and the G, but he ends no doubt, condemning himself. Because he goes on and he makes a list of sins that result in rebellion against God. Now listen to this list. Tell me if you're not on here. Covetousness, envy, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, insolence, haughtiness, boastful, disobedient to parents. I know all of my children are on this list. (laughs) See, all we have to do is look at the rest of Paul's list to see that we're all condemned by it. Who among us can honestly say we've never done any of those? And, And that's just a partial list. Those are the things Paul rattled off in this letter. But go ahead and read the rest of his letters and you'll find a bunch more. Paul says explicitly that all are condemned by the law of God. He says this, after listing all of the sin, he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And by judging, he means judging as God. 
judging as though you're not a sinner, too. He doesn't mean making judgment calls that certain things are sinful. Paul says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Are we Jews any better off? You know, you might be thinking, well, maybe the Jews are the righteous ones. It says, are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Then he says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. Paul quotes from Psalm 14. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now it's important to note that when Scripture repeats something, that generally means it's very important. All of Scripture is important. I mean, Scripture says something once. We need to pay attention to it. It doesn't need to be repeated. But for instance, when Scripture speaks of God's holiness, it says that God is holy, holy, holy. Holy is the only attribute of God repeated to the third degree. This phrase, no one does good, no, not one, is stated three times in Scripture. This exact phrase in Psalm 14 in Psalm 53, which is almost verbatim, Psalm 14, just repeat it again, and here in Romans chapter 3. So this isn't a typo. What, we, we might think, well, well, maybe just this is one bad verse in Scripture. I mean, no one does good. No, not one. That, that can't be true. But, but God repeats it twice to make sure we understand it's not a typo. As far as God is concerned, no human being does good. None. Now we might be thinking, well, isn't that a little extreme? I mean, like my kids made me breakfast this morning. That was good, wasn't it? I mean, it was, they did a lot of kind things. They gave me cards, they gave me hugs and kisses. I mean, a lot of those things are good, aren't they? Why, why would the Bible say no one does any good? Well, before you think the Bible doesn't make any distinctions at all between actions, that's not true. So when you start thinking that, well, no one does good, the Bible's saying there's no distinction between actions on a human scale, that's not true at all. Scripture makes distinctions all the time. See, on a, on a relative scale, in other words, judging between two different human beings, the Bible clearly says that some actions are good and some are bad. All you need to do is, is read through, for instance, First and Second Kings. And when you read through First and Second Kings, you just see king after king after king listed, and the Bible makes a judgment call on how those kings acted. Some are righteous and good, and, and some are wicked and evil. I mean, it's a very clear that Scripture makes these distinctions. So in that sense, in the relative sense, the sense that we're talking about, yes, was it, was it better that my children made me breakfast and gave me happy Father's Day cards rather than yelling at me and and disobeying me? Yes, of course. 
Of course, they were good this morning. But you see, a relative scale, you see, a relative scale from human to human is naturally the only one we ever want to use. It's the only one we ever want to use. Think about it, because when you operate always on a relative scale only, you can always exonerate yourself. Because there is always someone, especially because we make excuses for ourselves all the time. So on a relative human scale, there's always somebody worse than you. You can always look out there somewhere and say, well, at least I don't do that. I was pretty good today, all things considered. That's the way we like to judge ourselves. We love to do that. We love to exonerate ourselves. I do it all the time. Every week, a lot of times, Michelle is the poor recipient of me exonerating myself and trying to shift blame on her or somebody else. <clears throat> I took, uh, last Sunday, we went to Niagara Falls, and one morning, I took uh, my kids, my littlest ones, not the oldest, they, they stayed at the hotel, but I said, hey, let's go down to this Tim Hortons, which I've never had before, but they were all over the place up there. Let's go down to this Tim Hortons, and I'll get coffee, because it says it has really good coffee, and I'll get you guys pastries, because it says it has good pastries there. So we drive to Tim Hortons, and we're waiting in the drive through line. And this guy comes basically stumbling up to our van. And he didn't look good. He didn't look right. He looked like he might, you know, be very unpredictable. So I rolled the window down halfway, and his statement was, my wife and I are good people. Could I just have a little bit of money? And I said, no, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm not going to give you any money. And he immediately flipped out. He immediately became enraged, like, he, like a switch was turned. He became enraged, and he started threatening me and started cussing me out to the point where my little kids were, got immediately scared. And the manager of the Tim Hortons ran out and kind of yelled at him and told him to go. And, uh, and the kids said, let's just get out of here. Let's just, I don't even want to stay. I don't want to get the, the pastry. I don't know what he'll do. They were staring at him the whole time, and he was stumbling around in the, in the parking lot. It's interesting because I was thinking through this, this psalm, and, and that incident reminded me just how quickly someone who claimed to be good could immediately show deep down how really wicked and sinful they were. Now, the easy reaction to that encounter would be to look at him to exonerate myself. And perhaps that's what the others in the drive-thru were thinking about him. It's easy to condemn someone in that kind of state who's wandering around and walking up to random people and threatening their lives and cussing them out just because they don't give you a little bit of money. After all, I never did that. The whole time I was at Niagara Falls, I never once walked up to the front desk lady and threatened her life. I never cussed anybody out. I was pleasant. 
I was, the whole time at Niagara Falls, I, I spoke pleasantly, calmly to everybody. I was kind. One, at one point, I actually sat in the lobby in a chair and just prayed for about an hour. I'm sure the people at the front desk saw that. On the outside, he looked really bad and I looked really good on a relative scale. But what about God's scale? See, there's an interesting conversation that Jesus had once. A ruler came up and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer to him is, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. See, when Jesus speaks of good here, he obviously is not speaking of the relative human standard of goodness. He is speaking of the absolute standard of God's goodness. That's why he can say, no one is good except for God alone. Jesus, by the way, is not here denying that he is God. Over and over again, Jesus proclaims loudly and boldly that he is God. But he is trying to help this man see that if in this man's eyes he's only a teacher and not the Messiah, the divine Messiah sent from God, then he's not good. What is Jesus' point? Why say that at all? Well, because his goal is the goal of Psalm 14. It's Scripture's goal, which is not to make sinful humans feel marginally better, but to save them. It is to move some from the category of rebel to the category of son or daughter of God. See, when the disciples hear Jesus' discussion with this man, and they hear what Jesus is saying to this man, they ask the inevitable question. Then who can be saved? The disciples grasp the point, which is that if only God is good, and the standard by which we are judged, good or bad, is God's absolute standard, then they too are sinners in need of saving. The statement, no one does good, may seem and it might even seem to you this morning to be the most depressing statement you've ever heard in your life. And in a way, it is. But in another way, it is a statement for which we need to be eternally thankful to God that he was honest with us. We need to be thankful for two reasons. First of all, because that statement humbles everyone. Romans 3, Paul says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, because through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, on the outside... If we're just looking at a very surface level, the man at Tim Hortons who threatened my life looked bad, and the entire time I was staying at the hotel in Niagara Falls, I looked good. But you see, when we're both placed on God's scale, both of us are equally condemned. 
See, there was nothing that I did on the entire trip to Niagara Falls that looked as outwardly bad, Uh, at least not to strangers. I'm sure Michelle and my kids could make an argument for even, you know, it being outwardly bad. But see, outwardly, I did present myself as courteous to everyone I met. But when I'm honest with myself and I begin to look at God's law, which is summed up earlier with what we read, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. When I begin to weigh myself against that, and I weigh my my thoughts and my words and my actions the entire weekend at Niagara Falls according compared to God and His purity and His law, then I find that I did ten times what that man at Tim Hortons did. I don't know what else he did. I only know what he did to me. I know what I did to everyone and to God the entire weekend. The entire weekend, I was angry sometimes for no good reason. Many times I was selfish. I sometimes threw a couple of pity parties for myself because things at Niagara Falls didn't go exactly the way I wanted them to go. I didn't love my wife and my children the way I'm commanded to by God. I didn't serve them the way I'm commanded to by God. I complained. I didn't thank God the way I ought to have. The list goes on. If if I really think about it, the list is endless. In 1908, the New York Times asked a number of authors to write on the topic, what is wrong with the world? They asked a number of authors, what is wrong with the world? Please submit your answer to the New York Times. G.K. Chesterton was one of the authors they asked. His, His answer was the shortest one submitted. His answer was this, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Now, do you really think that outwardly everyone in the world looked at G.K. Chesterton, an author, and uh, and a Christian apologist, and, and thought, he's the problem with the world? No, of course not. But you see, when he saw himself against the backdrop of God's righteous law, He saw himself as the chief of sinners, just as the Apostle Paul did. Which brings us to the second reason we ought to be thankful that Scripture tells us that we aren't good. Because when Scripture's honest and it tells us that we aren't good, it drives us into the arms of someone who is good. And David speaks of suddenly... Notice that that after God says no one does good, in the next verses, suddenly God speaks of a category of people who are His people. Verses 4 to 6, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is His refuge." So what we see here in Psalm 14 is, despite starting out as one category of humanity, there's one category, 
everyone's condemned, no one does good, no, not one, we're all in this category. Suddenly, Psalm 14 states that there are two categories of people. There are evildoers, and the people in this category, they eat up God's people as they eat bread, they, they don't call upon the Lord, they shame the plans of the poor, and they are living in great terror. And then there's this other category of people, those who are God's people. And the people in this category are eaten up by the evildoers, but they call upon the Lord, and they are therefore righteous, and they have the Lord as their refuge. We say, well, how is that possible? If no one seeks after God, if, if no one does good, <coughs> how is it possible that anyone ends up God's people. Well, when the disciples heard Jesus' discussion with this man, they asked the inevitable question, then who can be saved? And Jesus gives the best answer he could have given. Because he doesn't say, if you just try as hard as you can, maybe you'll make it one day. He says what is impossible with man is possible with God. Friends, when the Bible pounds into us the terrible news that we are all sinners, justly deserving God's punishment for sin, when it pounds into us the news that none of us is good, the news that none of us does good, it doesn't pound that into us just to make us feel terrible. It, it drives that point home in order to drive us to someone other than ourselves for salvation. That's what the Bible wants us to do. And you, you ask around this world and you, you ask people how, it, A, are you, well, there's a few questions you can ask people. One, I've asked people, are you perfect? I've never had anyone say either, I don't know what you mean by that, or yes, I am. Everyone I ask, universally, Christian or non, says, no, I'm not perfect, and usually they follow it up with, but nobody is. They all acknowledge exactly what Scripture says. But then if you ask them if they're going to heaven, if they're not Christians, Generally speaking, the answer they give is based on their own effort. Yes, I think I am. Why? Because I'm trying to be a good person. Scripture says that is a futile march in life. See, Paul sums up Psalm 14 with where salvation comes. Verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Salvation, notice, doesn't come from ourselves. Paul could have wrapped this, or, or David could have wrapped this whole thing up that, oh, that salvation would come from somebody, that somebody would be able to break out of this mold of sin and, and save themselves. Can't somebody do it? No. He says salvation comes out of Zion. What is Zion? Zion is another word for Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is another word for Calvary. Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a hill. And it was on that hill that stood an old rugged cross. And as we sung earlier, it was on that cross that the Father, this is Father's Day, the day when fathers get gifts, it was on that day that our Heavenly Father gave the greatest gift we could have ever been given. It was on that cross that the only one who truly is good hung and was killed for those who aren't. And Paul tells us, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Friends, the bad news this morning is that you are not good. But the good news is that Jesus is If you haven't run to him for salvation, I urge you to do so. And if you have already, then remember this day that your heavenly father gave you the best gift you've ever been given. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so thankful. We're so thankful that though we are not good, that though we could never enter your gates on our own merits, you sent your son to do for us what we could not do. Father, we pray today that you would impress that truth upon us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.